Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. In our, in our last sermon, our last section, Jesus shared a truth that absolutely shook his disciples to the core. Matthew 19, 23, he said, Truly, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man, difficult for a rich man, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in that, in that day, riches were understood as a sign of God's favor and as a, as a tool for doing more good and therefore earning more favor with God. In their minds, the rich were the most likely people to enter the kingdom. But Jesus made this shocking statement which by itself was completely paradigm shifting that it was hard or difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus proceeds with an even more shocking illustration telling them again I say unto you, verse 24, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's not going to fit very well, is it? Than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God Jesus said it was difficult, but then the illustration pointed to an impossibility. And that's exactly how the disciples took it. In verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. They were at pleso. They were beside themselves. They were uh, overwhelmed. They were struck with absolute panic. And they said in that panic state, who then can be saved? If it was impossible for one on whom the blessings of God so obviously rested to enter the kingdom of heaven, then what would that mean for lesser men? If it's impossible for the rich to be saved, how much more impossible would it be for everyone else? And we might expect Jesus to immediately comfort his disciples here and to assure them that they're panicked over nothing. But that's not what he does at all. In verse 26, he looks at them. He looks at them intently, directly at them. Makes eye contact, looks them straight in the face, gazes at them. He doesn't answer immediately. Kind of scans over them. And he says, with man, this is impossible. Being saved with man is impossible. The, qu the question suggests that if, Jesus, if what Jesus says is true is about the impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom of God, then it would be impossible for any man to enter. But then he assures them at the end, with God, all things are possible. It is earthly. In your flesh, there's nothing that you're going to be able to do to get you into heaven. But with God, totally total dependence on Him, He can do it. He can bring you in. You must be born again. And that brings us to this following exchange in Matthew 19, 27 through 29. Then, right after this exchange, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Then what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you shall also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. We're going to bear down on Peter's question and Jesus' answer this morning. And 
in our next sermon as well. It's just too much here to unpack. So we're going to look at how, how the disciples want to know how they can know that they're going to enter into life if it's, earthly, if it's physically impossible in their flesh. How can we know? What do we get? And then also Jesus adds when they will get it, which we're going to handle more in depth in our next sermon. But we'll start with Peter's question in verse 27. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And clearly their panic wasn't eliminated by Jesus' words. If anything, their panic is amped up even higher by Jesus stopping and gazing at them and saying, With man, this is impossible. And that's certainly understandable, isn't it? If there's nothing that we in ourselves can do to merit salvation, then how can we be sure that we will be saved? We could never give uh, enough, we could never be sorry enough, could we? We could never do enough good deeds. I love the song, Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? No respite know? These for sin could not atone. And of course, we could never give up enough wealth or riches to merit salvation. Which they kind of thought that way. If, we, if we are, we're successful enough and we give of the overthrow and our abundance enough, then we can merit salvation in some way. The rich can't do it. And the poor in their flesh, they can't either. You're never going to be able to give enough. So behind this exchange, we have the historically persistent and the emotionally charged issue of assurance of salvation. How many here have dealt with it at times? That aches there. Oh my. I want everlasting life. I want to be saved. I want to enter the kingdom. But you just said it's impossible. And Peter's feeling weight of that. Of Jesus' revelation to him here. And as is often the case, Peter speaks up as a representative for the twelve. Peter said to him, Behold... Weave. There's an urgency in this question, and there should be. When you're talking about your soul, you should have an urgency, shouldn't you? When you have these doubts, the worst thing to do is ignore them. Peter didn't do that. Make your calling and election sure is important, isn't it? To examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, to know that Christ Jesus be in you, lest you be reprobate. That when you start wondering, you should search these things out. When you're like, how can I know? There's not a more important question, and to bury it in a sea of busyness, to put it out of your mind, is the worst thing you can do. You should hit it head on. Behold, we've left everything. And follow you. Behold. This behold is like a trumpet blast. It's, the word means to look here. Look here and see. It's put in front of an idea or a statement or a proclamation to draw special, urgent interest to something. Lord, please hear us out on this. This is urgent. The extreme astonishment of verse 25, the being beside oneself, overwhelmed and panicked, is spilling over into a question that the disciples must have answered. And the urgency of the question is related to how much the disciples have given up. And notice, they, they have left everything and followed Jesus. That's what they say. 
the twelve feel that they've done exactly what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do in verse 21, where he told him that if you wish to be complete, if you want to do everything that you can do, you want to be complete, then go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And they think they see some inconsistency here. Jesus told the rich young ruler if he gave up all of his possessions and gave them to the poor, if he trusted that the reward in heaven would be worth the sacrifice and follow Jesus, that he would indeed be complete. But then after the rich young ruler refused and went away sorrowful, Jesus said, well, he wouldn't do it. No, he didn't say that. He, he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then adds to that when they ask who then can be saved because that shocks them that any man, rich or poor, with man, any man, rich or poor, this being saved is impossible. And that only through a miraculous work of God could any man be saved. How could you know that that miraculous work was going to take place for you if there's nothing you can do? Would you have been shaken? They were. This we in verse 27 is emphatic as well. This behold, we. It's unnecessary in the Greek. That's why I say it's emphatic. The Greek doesn't have to have the we because it's included in the verb. The verbs are conjugated where you don't have to add the pronoun there. But he adds the pronoun for emphasis, Peter does. It's, it's, it's redundant. It's we is there in the verb and in the word and thrown to the first of the sentence. It's like we, in opposition to what this rich young ruler have done, we have actually left everything, Lord. It's hard for the rich, even impossible for the rich, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this rich guy refused to give up his assets and follow you, but we have. Like, we've, we've got a lot invested here. We've done what you called us to do. We've done what you called him to do. We might not have the possessions that he has. And what... We gave up is far less than what he would have given up had he listened. But we did give up everything. We gave up everything. Remember, I mean, and it was a lot. It wasn't like nothing. Peter, as, as Jesus was, remember their call when Peter was walking by the Sea of Galilee and he saw uh, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their nets by the sea. So they had nets and they had a boat and they had a fishing business. And you made money in fishing businesses. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they dillied around and thought about it and thought, well, I don't know. No, no. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They left it all behind immediately. They believed. And going on from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. Same situation. And he called them, and once again, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed them. They left their boat and their father and the business. These four fishermen left their family business. They left the inheritance that they were helping to build. They had counted the cost and they had deemed the cost worth it because we will give all this up if we can get what you're offering, Jesus. We believe you. But was it possible that it was all for nothing? Is that possible? If we can't, if nothing we do secures that we can have assurance because of the things we've done. That's what they're thinking. 
If that doesn't get us anything, will there not be anything for us? Not only did Peter and Andrew and James and John leave everything, but Matthew, our gospel writer, his was a more sinful business, but even more lucrative. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors were loaded. He left that behind. Each of the twelve had left behind all that they knew. And Peter is expressing the hearts of each of the twelve. It's like, we came on your terms, didn't we, Lord? Doesn't that mean that we qualify for the eternal life that this rich young ruler asked about? He refused to surrender his possessions and his life to you, and he forfeited the kingdom. We get that, but we forsook our jobs, our families, our friends, and everything that we had, and we chose following you over everything. We've repented of our sins. We've surrendered to your lordship. We've denied ourselves. We've taken up our crosses and followed you. Had Jesus not said earlier... If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said it in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Another version of it, basically the same thing in Matthew 10, 38 and 39. The answer seems to be obvious. Of course the twelve would have treasure in heaven. But Peter doesn't seem so sure. Or at least he wants a comforting Clarification. So we see the question itself. Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And here's this question. What then will there be for us? This question is much maligned. I actually read commentaries and people kind of blasting Peter over the question. seems that everyone has a problem with it except for Jesus. <laughs> Everybody's got a, a problem with Peter's question except for Jesus. And isn't he the only one that really matters? People accuse the question of smugness. Of being rooted in works righteousness. And for the concern for reward. People got a problem with all three of those things. Well, let's briefly answer those. The charge of smugness. I get it. It kind of sounds a bit smug to our ears, doesn't it? Uh, We, unlike that young man, (laughs) he wouldn't leave everything, but we are. We've done what you asked, Lord. Some even accuse the smugness of being mixed with dishonesty. You say, well, why? Well, because the disciples, they argue, left everything, but they didn't sell everything they owned and give it to the poor. They didn't. I mean, we know that from reading this very gospel. Peter apparently still owned a house in Capernaum. They were at Peter's house. Matthew 8, 14 and 15. And one of the disciples owned a boat because they own a boat all the time. They, they want a boat, it's readily available. They jump on the boat, they go over, you know, we've got it in 8, 18, 14, 22, 15, 39. But as we've already seen just by reading the text, Jesus doesn't correct for any perceived smugness or for coming short of his demands. He doesn't say, no, you didn't. And he doesn't say, you're being smug or arrogant, how dare you. He doesn't blame them for being like the Pharisee who said, you know, I thank God that I'm not like other men. There's no correction here. Peter is just stating the facts. They have heeded Jesus' call where the rich ruler rejected it. And whatever assets they retained, you can rest assured they retained them for the benefit of the kingdom. They were at the disposal of King Jesus. But they are... And isn't that what we're all called to do? 
Everything we own, guys, Christian, see your assets as a mean to glorifying God. You own them to the glory of God and you'll use them for the glory of God. They're yours as a stewardship, but ultimately they're all His. Shouldn't we, all of us, view everything we own that way? Absolutely, and they did. We're stewards of our asset, using them not merely for our own pleasure, but to the glory of God and for the benefit of His kingdom. And if obedience and faithfulness would cost us our assets, would we not give them up? And I, I say that assuming you would, but seriously ask yourself that question because if you don't have that heart, there's something wrong with the heart you've got. That's the heart of a Christian. You will, lo you will lose it in the path of faithfulness if you're a Christian. And having it, you're like, this benefits the kingdom. I'm going to use it for the sake of the kingdom. And if God takes it away, you can be like Job and say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the kind of hold that Christians have on their assets that they do retain. And these disciples, that's how they had their assets. So they, they, had, they were fulfilling the spirit of this question. That was at least the heart of 11 of the 12 of these, right? We're not going to get in much to Judas, but we know there was one that the office had to be replaced. But also you've got a charge of works righteousness that some people levy against this. The, the gist of this accusation is that there is a mercenary undertone. That basically, God owes me. Uh, we've done everything required of us, and God owes us. And if they were saying that, that would be a problem. That's a problem, isn't it? That's not the heart of a kingdom citizen. Matthew 5, 3, the very first words of Jesus' public ministry, really. I mean, in, in many ways, this Sermon on the Mount, the inaugural address, is blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually destitute, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you think you're, you, God owes you or you've got something to offer, that's the opposite of the heart of a kingdom citizen. But once again, that's a misreading of the spirit of this question. Had Peter been claiming that God owed them based on their own righteousness, Jesus would have absolutely corrected such a damnable claim. Jesus loved them much too much, much, too much not to hurt their feelings. <laughs> hey guys, when someone's in danger and they believe something or they're holding something or they're doing something, you're not showing them love by tolerating that. You're showing them love by speaking to it. And Jesus loved people. He would have spoke to it if it was a problem. If it was there, he'd have dealt with it. Say, so I just love them and I don't want to hurt the relationship. Oh, to the damning of their soul? That's not love. You might think that's love. That's not love. Jesus loved people. Spurgeon said this, The man who clings to his own righteousness is like a man who grasps a millstone to keep himself from sinking in a flood. I like that. Your righteousness will damn you if you trust in it just as surely as your sins will because it is a proud, false lie. But no, they were not saying that they were owed. They were just asking what they would get. They're not saying, God, you owe us. They're saying, what will we get? They truly had counted the cost. They truly had heeded the call. And Peter's not demanding anything from the Lord. And there's no claim of their just due for their sacrifices that they have made. They're simply asking a reasonable question. We've left everything else behind. And did we do it for nothing? Will, what will there be for us? And some even have a problem with that. That third charge. Being concerned with reward. The concept of rewards isn't spoken of often in our pulpits today. Christians are scared of it. Today people think that true virtue is about sacrifice and that the highest virtue is only reached when there's nothing in it for you. 
Virtue is looked at as doing the right thing simply because it's the right thing to do with no consideration of reward. Guys, that came from Kant. It didn't come from the Bibles. That comes from philosophy. Obedience for the sake of reward is frowned upon. You only did that because you wanted this or that. I hear husbands and wives do that at each other. No, that's not the only reason. Why are you parsing my motives? I, I love you and I want good. Is that wrong? If it is, Jesus motivated with it all the time. We've got a problem, don't we? Such an understanding has even trickled into our human interactions. A desire for your loving deeds or services to be recognized or rewarded discredits them in our culture today. The motive of reward is looked at with disdain, whether it be reward from man or reward from God. The default way of thinking is that God expects us to do without truly pleasurable things and instead to obey Him even though it leads to a life with much less joy. I have to give up the fun life to get this drab life, but I'll get eternal life in the end, so I guess I have to. Guys, that's wicked thinking. Wicked thinking. That's what this false, unbiblical ethic gets you to, is wicked thinking. Perish the thought. How dishonoring to God. God calls us to forfeit lesser pleasures, guess what? For greater pleasures. A lesser existence. I don't know, like single at 33 with a cat draped around your neck and a billion dollars in the bank but no wife and no, uh, no husband and no kids. And that's the good life. To a life with multi-generational faithfulness. There's a difference. There's something better for the people of God. Lasting. Something good. Not something bad. God calls us to forfeit lesser pleasures for greater pleasures. Fleeting reward for lasting reward. And that's why Jesus motivates with the promise of rewards. If it was bad to want rewards, Jesus wouldn't hang them out there as a dangled carrot, would he? But he does. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad because at least you're doing the right thing. No, for great is your reward in heaven. Right? Not altruism. For great is your reward in heaven. Why pray in secret? When you pray, go into your inner room and close your door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And what? Your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Why fast in secret? When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Once again, we won't... Do you want the fleeting reward and praise of men? The fickle praise of men or the eternal lasting reward of God? And the praises of God. Why love your enemies? Love your enemies. Do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Why give financially to the church? He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But he who sows abundantly will also reap abundantly. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. We're instructed to seek treasure. Heavenly treasure. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Matthew 6, 19-21 Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And even 
immediately, in our immediate context, just verses ago, Jesus said to the rich and ruler, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Jesus motivated with promises of reward, and he was even motivated. The God-man, the sinless God-man was motivated by promises of reward. We are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the selflessness of altruistic good endured the cross. Nope. Huh. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, thinking nothing of the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'll obey God and I'll get it all. So I'll endure temporarily this cross because there's a greater joy that God has for me, right? That's what motivated Jesus. Luke 24, 25 through 26, After his resurrection, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Even when, that's why when Jesus was betrayed and Judas had taken the morsel and Jesus told him, What you do, do quickly. It said that when Judas had gone out, Jesus immediately says, Now the Son of God is glorified. Wait, no, you just got betrayed. Yeah, he got betrayed, and it's going to lead to the cross, which is going to lead to worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power. It's the glory. He endured it all. Why? For greater glory. Focusing on heavenly reward produces the fruit of endurance and perseverance. The strength to endure present suffering is the fruit of meditating on future satisfaction. That's how you endure. Persecution is followed by great reward in heaven. Not a wage won by human merit, but a reward of God's pure grace. Romans 8, 16-18 and 23-25 The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. Why? So that we might also be glorified with Him. We suffer now. We endure things now, hardships now in the path of faithfulness so that we will be glorified with Him. But it's that motivation of reward, isn't it? It keeps us going on. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. We don't lose heart because we contemplate the unseen things of the future. And we nourish our souls with the truth that whatever we endure on this earth is producing a glory far beyond all comparison. Christians are not asked to treat pain as if it were pleasure or grief as though it were joy, but to bring all earthly adversity into comparison with heavenly glory and therefore be strengthened to endure. Not only this, it says in Romans 8, 24, not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is already seen? But we hope for that which we do not see. And with perseverance we eagerly wait for the reward to come. It's the reward of faith. Are you living for eternal reward? 
to willingly bear the reproach of Christ is grounded in the expectation of a city that is to come, namely the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. So let us go outside the camp with him, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking a city that is to come. Some have criticized Peter for his expectation of blessing and reward of all three of these ways. They're all invalid. In light of everything we've just reviewed, we shouldn't be surprised to find that Jesus gave no hint of dissatisfaction with the question. His answer is totally affirming. Verse 28, And Jesus said to them, Peter addressed them and spoke of we, and he says to all of them, because Peter's acting as a representative, he said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. we got a comforting certainty here, don't we? He starts with that phrase again that we looked at in more depth last week, this truly I say unto you. This, this same truly I say unto you phrase that recently greatly panicked the disciples is now being used to comfort the disciples. Remember just verses ago, truly I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Again, I say to you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This amen, this truly, this verily was a formal way of expressing the absolute faithfulness, certainty, or reliability of something. They're looking for assurance, and Jesus has given it to them with the absolute certainty, reliability, and faithfulness of heaven stamped right on top of it. Just as sure as what I said, that it's difficult for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Just as sure as what I said, that it's impossible, just as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle, that you who have followed me, you're going to get what you're looking for. It was used to say, what you just heard carries behind it the authority of heaven, or what you're about to hear carries the authority of heaven. The rabbis only used this amen construct to affirm Scripture or the tradition of the elders. But Jesus affirmed His deity and authority by saying, truly, I say to you. They would hear the reading of Scripture and they would respond by saying, amen, yes, God said that. Jesus would say, truly, amen, I say to you, because what He said was truth. He is the way the truth, and the life. The disciples obviously believed Jesus was the Messiah, so when he, he absolutely affirmed the impossibility of the rich man or any man for that matter entering the kingdom of God, it terrified the disciples. But now Jesus compassionately offers the same absolute authority to guarantee that their reward would be worth their sacrifice. And that, that's the big thrust of this. Your reward will be worth your sacrifice. And who are the beneficiaries of this comforting certainty? The recipients are that you who have followed me. Right here it's not talking about all men for all time. Well, we, And we know that because Jesus is answering Peter's question as a representative of who? Of the twelve. In verse 27, Behold, we, the twelve, have left everything and followed you. Then we get the statement about the timing of the reward in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne. And then the answer to the question, You shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They're going to, they're going to get something. 
Jesus answers the question the same way that it was asked also. Remember the we in verse 27, we've left everything and followed you, that it's emphatic. Remember it was an unnecessary word, the pronoun wasn't necessary for it to be implied because it was already in the verb. Jesus does the same thing. He, he adds the you, even though it's in the verb, and thrusts it to the first of the sentence as well. He's like, you will get this, emphatically. What about us? <laughs> Don't you worry about you. It's unnecessary in the Greek because the person and number are already included in the conjugation of the verb, but it's added and thrust to the first of the sentence after the behold to emphasize it. And Jesus does that same thing. The fishermen, Peter and Andrew, who left their boats and nets, and James and John, who left their boats and nets, and their father too, have absolutely not done anything for nothing nor had any of the other twelve who had truly followed Jesus for his name's sake. We see that calling in 10, 1 through 5. So did their following, did their following of Jesus merit their salvation? Hadn't the disciples just asked, who then can be saved? And didn't Jesus respond by saying, with man, with all men, this being saved is impossible. But then with all the authority of heaven, Jesus guarantees them that every one of them who truly followed him from the heart would be rewarded. I thought it was only possible for men to be saved because all things are possible with God. But he's saying, all of you that followed, all of you that divested yourself, will be saved. Beloved, do you not understand why that you follow and why you believe? Do you not understand where that came from? you remember when Jesus asked the disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say you were John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you're really bright and really righteous, and you had better sense than all those people, all those fools out there that thought I was John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Isaiah. No. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. What? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But our Father who is in heaven. That's it. They believed because it was revealed to them. Do you know why you believe? Because it's revealed to you. Because your eyes have been opened. They followed because they believed. They, they believed because it was revealed and they followed because they believed. Yes, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, but that faith manifested itself in Abraham actually leaving his land and leaving his people and going where God said to go. The faith was not a dead faith, it was a living faith that led to living action. And those that have living action behind what you actually say you believe, you can guarantee God gave you the faith and He gave you the faithfulness to go forward and do what God's called you to do. But you can't take credit for either one. Because God gave you the faith and the faith led to the faithfulness. But if He gave you the faith that produced the faithfulness, you better recognize He's going to be faithful too. And truly, He says unto you, truly, those that follow Me, you'll have your reward. It was true of them in a unique way and it's true of us also in all people who follow by faith. We're saved by faith, but faith is accompanied by works every time. James 2, 17 and 18. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. 
But someone might say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, show me your faith without your works. Good luck. You can't show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. They come together as a package. They're two sides of the same coin. If you've got one, you've got the other. John 15, 16, you did not choose me. Jesus says to the twelve, but I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. He that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Write it down, Philippians 1.6. You don't have to write it down. Paul already did. You can just go read it. Straight book. Calvin is helpful commenting on Matthew 16.27 where it says, The Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then render to everyone according to His deeds. Well, that sounds like works. Listen to Calvin on this. When a reward is promised to good works, their merit is not contrasted with a justification which is freely bestowed upon us through faith, nor is it pointed out as the cause of our salvation, but is only held out to excite believers to aim at doing what is right, by assuring them that their labor will not be lost. This is a perfect, in perfect agreement. Therefore, between these two statements, there are there, that we are freely justified by faith, Romans 3.24, because we are received into God's favor without any merit, and yet that God by His own good pleasure bestows upon our works a reward that we don't deserve. He rewards us even though He did it. That's what Calvin's saying. He does the work in you, gives you the faith, produces the faithfulness, and then rewards you like it's in you. You talk about grace. We're going to get rewarded because God did a work in us. He washed us with water word and made us holy and then presents us to Himself and rewards us with Him, united to Him as His bride. The timing is also here in this text. In the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. And that one is difficult and time-consuming to unpack. Uh, In order to address it, we have to answer three questions which require quite a bit of jumping around in order to get it right. We have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Amen? We we don't decide what... What does this Scripture mean to you? You know what? I don't care. I don't care what it means to you and I don't care what it means to me until I've studied it and said, hey, the Scriptures, when I compare them with the Scriptures, this seems to be what God's saying. And then I want to test it by all the Scriptures I can put together and say, yep, this is what it's saying because God controls the meaning, not us and our fancies. You had a thought? Well, I had gas the other day. So what? (laughs) Who is the Son of Man? (laughs) That's a loaded one. Takes some time. When will the Son of Man sit on His glorious throne? (laughs) Another loaded one. And what's meant by in the regeneration? There's a lot of work to be done to unpack those. So this morning I thought addressing these involved questions would bog us down and make us miss the main thrust of this text, which is, here's the thrust of this text, the reward is worth the sacrifice. We can't lose that. And I didn't want to lose it in a sea of a bunch of texts we jumped to proving the timestamp on this. We're going to have to because we need to know it, and we're not going to this week. Mark that down, that the reward is worth the sacrifice. You will never, in the path of faithfulness, forfeit any good thing and not receive better things in return. 100% of the time, write it down. And for the disciples, what would the reward be? Well, it would be authority. We can't touch this. You shall sit on twelve thrones, 
judging the twelve tribes of Israel. How we handle the timestamp phrase in, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne impacts how we're going to interpret this promise of authority. How we understand when they did, when they sat on the thrones, or when they will, whether it's future or past, whether it was while they were alive or if it's going to be when they're raised from the dead, how we, how we handle that impacts where we're going to go with this. So I'll save my explanation for my next sermon in which I'm going to unpack my understanding of the timing. But as a teaser, let me say this. That in some sense, the authority to act as judges over the twelve tribes of Israel had already even happened by this time. In some sense. You say, well, why do you say that? Turn, turn with me quickly to Matthew 10, 5 through 15. <coughs> These twelve, Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go where? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? And what are they supposed to do when they get there? When they go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Skip down to verse 11. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, who, who has a reputation of being a godly person, and stay at that house until you leave the city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting, your greeting of peace. Wish the shalom of God. Hey, with Jesus, he's ushering in the shalom of God. I wish that on you in your house while we stay here. And if that house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. What are they doing? They're having to judge these tribes of Israel in the houses that they go in as they're spreading the gospel of the kingdom. They're going in with people with reputation of being worthy. And then when they get in there, they actually discern whether they're worthy or not based off of what? Verse 14. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off of your feet. What is that? Well, when they came in from Gentile lands, before they came back into the Holy Land, they had that, the custom was to shake the dust, not to carry Gentile dust back into their, to their promised land, back into Israel. And he's saying, even though you're in Israelite cities with Israelite people, if they won't hear my words, shake the dust off of their feet, because not all who are of Israel are Israel. Shake. You're saying, no, you're not part of us. You're judging. You're making this distinction, not based off of their bloodline, but based off of their response to whether they'll receive Jesus or not. And truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, the most pagan Gentile city you can think of, than it will in the day, in, in the day of judgment for that city. They're already doing that now based off of the testimony of Christ prior to God's stamp of the resurrection from the dead. They will fill up the measure of the wrath that's coming on them later when they crucify Jesus and then the disciples will have even more authority to go and make this delineation with their miracles and their testimony and the Word of God calling them, hey, the stone which the builders rejected, it's became the chief cornerstone. You rejected it. Now repent or you can't be forgiven. And if you won't repent, judgment's coming on you. Kind of showing my hand a little bit, but I want to break it out in more detail next week. That's what's going on here, though. There's an already but a not yet to this authority they have as the spokesmen of Jesus, as the twelve apostles of the Messiah, the twelve representing the twelve tribes, to be the new and better community of faith, more holy than the synagogue system and the temple system, which was completely corrupt with their scribes and Pharisees. 
Except your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. We've already seen this superior authority over the existing synagogue and temple system alluded to in Matthew 16, 18-19, right after Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, uh, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock. He said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, the ecclesia. That was the word used for the old community of Israel. And now he's saying, I'm going to build a new community, the church, and the gates of hell will not overpower her. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom, the authority of the kingdom of heaven. That's the same idea as the thrones. say, well, the disciples didn't sit on literal thrones. No, they didn't have literal keys either. It's representative of the authority they would have to judge and to delineate. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. You're going to get this right, and whatever you loose on earth will be what was loosed in heaven. You will judge rightly about who actually is worthy and who isn't, who is an unbeliever and who is a believer. You'll have the authority to do so and the ability to do so. Jesus' disciples, under the leadership of the Son of Man, constitute this new ecclesia, this new Israel, over against the old failed regime. We'll see the clearest expression of these ideas in the parables in Matthew 21, 28 through 22, 14, and in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. I encourage you to read it on your own, but sermons have to end at some time, so I can't go over everything in the book, right? But not only does Jesus guarantee that the twelve will have reward, that their reward is worth their sacrifice, He also includes those who believe their message. The disciples receive the authority to serve as apostles who with the prophets serve as the foundation of the church, right? Ephesians 2.20, that is, the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. And all those who heed their message get, they get authority, but all those that heed their message, they get restitution. Look at, and everyone, verse 29, who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. Now again, showing my hand a bit concerning the timing of in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, we have to understand this promise of restitution in the context in which it's written. We read this, and we read it with our 21st century lens in America, and that's how we think. Like I read this, oh, well, this is clearly talking about the end of time that everyone throughout all of human history who has ever left anything is going to be rest, rest, uh, restored. And is that true? Well, yeah, but it's not what this is talking about, I don't think. The same pattern will be true for all people. That's not what this is talking about. Have you ever met anyone who had to leave their house or farm or their siblings or their mother or father or their children for the sake of Jesus' name? Y'all know anybody like that? Well, I had to leave my house. My faithfulness to Jesus had to leave my house and my farm. Furthermore, isn't it kind of odd to leave your father or mother? Because don't we have the law give us a responsibility to care for them? If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel? And Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord isn't really consistent with leaving them, is it? 
We always have to consider when and where these things are written. And it's almost always wrong to leave your family behind. But for everyone to whom the twelve would be preaching for the next 40 years, leaving houses and farms was a necessary part of believing King Jesus. You've got to put yourself there. We can't forget that their message was that this Jesus who you crucified was raised from the dead and He has ascended to the right hand of the throne of God on high. That right now God has overcome the verdict that you all falsely gave Him, raised Him from the dead and He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and He's coming back in judgment on this generation of Jews and that's going to run all the way through the book of Matthew. Especially chapter 24. Unless you repent, you're going to be swept away in the judgment that's coming on this generation of Jews. Remember, Matthew 24, I'm sorry, Matthew 11, 21 through 24. Woe unto you, Horazim, and woe unto you, Bethsaida. What are those? Those are cities in Israel. For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in dust and ashes, but Tyre and Sidon were destroyed... And they would have repented if they had the blessings you've had and you've still not repented. So woe unto you. Nevertheless, I say it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than it will in the judgment for you. For who? For Horazine and Bethsaida. Those cities don't exist anymore. This isn't talking about future judgment. It's talking about a judgment that was going to take place then in that generation. And yes, Capernaum, also another one. You won't be exalted into heaven, will you? You'll descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, you would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And skip over to Matthew 12, 38 through 41, when the scribes and Pharisees, those who are especially going to be judged for their false religion, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Yet no sign shall be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment against this generation. Why? Because somebody lesser, Jonah was just in the belly of a well, came out, vomited up on the land and went and preached and they heard him. But Jesus, a greater than Jonah, will actually die and be in the grave at the hands of these monsters, come back with the apostles with a message that they have to repent and they still won't hear that message with that sign that Jesus raised from the dead. And they'll condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Moses. Something greater than Jonah is here. Judgment's coming on that generation. A literal judgment would come upon Israel in that generation. Matthew 24, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with His disciples and came up to the point, point out the temple buildings to Him. And He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you that not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. When you see Jerusalem... What? When you see where? Jerusalem founded by armies. When? Well, obviously right now with the Gaza stuff. No! <coughs> When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize that the desolation is near. When who sees it? Those people that Jesus is talking to. When you see this, know that the desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's leaving houses or farms or father or mother or siblings or children, they have to actually get out of that place. And those that hear your message and get out, because for about two years before, it's getting pretty, it's getting pretty hairy. And a lot of Jews did convert right before that. And guess what they did? They left. They heard the message of Jesus 
from the apostles and they believed, hey, everything you're saying matches up. Jesus must have really rose from the dead. And everything you're telling us that's about to happen in Jerusalem to this generation, I, I don't have to be no scholar. I can see the political turmoil and climate coming. I can see that the, 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 it's getting really tense. This is all about to be judged. And the Christians, they got out. And the ones that got out, what did they receive? Well, they walked in the ways of righteousness. They heeded King Jesus. The ones that lived, they, in this present age, received back more than they lost houses and farms and families. This isn't rocket science. We just have to read the whole Bible together. It interprets itself. We, we, all I think this means, it doesn't matter what you think it means. We compare Scripture with Scripture and then we get it right. And that's the goal, isn't it? To believe that Christ would necessitate that all believers leave everything they knew. The synagogue system, the temple, the sacrifices, the land itself, that's what he was calling the rich young ruler to. That's why he's saying, you have to get rid of all this. It wasn't that wealth's bad. It was that, hey, this is perishing. And he's saying, everyone that does what I called this rich young ruler to do, they'll follow Jesus into a better blessing in the new community than that community that's about to be destroyed. They would leave behind houses and farms and families and they would get many times as much. The disciples would call their hearers to heed the commands and the warnings of the risen Christ. Where when Jesus raised, what did he say? All authority will one day be given to me. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. All authority has been given to me in heaven and where else on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Everyone who believed their message and fled, all that they knew before the destruction would lose a lot. But everyone who left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children or farms, for the sake of Jesus, would receive many times as much. And in the end eternal life. The central point being made here though is that the demands of discipleship may be severe. The blessings are completely out of proportion with the cost though. Guys, you can never in the path of faithfulness give up anything you don't get back. Believe Jesus. Be willing to lose everything in the path of faithfulness because you might lose temporary blessings you're getting by compromise, but He promises greater blessings either here or in the hereafter and both kinds are worth it. Unplug from wicked things that are blessing you and plug into holy things that will bless you more. That's the message of this text. Mark's version, I love it. Truly I say to you that there's no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or farms for my sake in the Gospels, but he will receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Mothers, fathers, sisters, children and farms, along with persecutions and the age to come. Eternal life. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for your promises that just as much as it's true that in the flesh we cannot please you, we cannot come to you, that by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified in his sight, that you have, you didn't only die on the cross, you didn't only send your son to die for our sins and then raise again and leave it up to us, but that you illuminated our understanding, that you've called us to yourself, and that because we believe and you gave us faith, we actually follow, and that everyone that follows you 
And they're doing it for your namesake. And they're willing to lose in this age to gain more in the age to come. That we can be certain that that faith did not come for us, from us. And that we can have assurance of our salvation. God grant every believer at Mainville Fellowship this kind of assurance. Comfort them with the truth that they truly can know. That truly you say unto us that everyone who leaves and loses because of their faith will regain more. Let it motivate them to continue in faithfulness and let it assure their hearts that you've done a work in them to the saving of their soul. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.